clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. Roar! And open the door to join us for the 24th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I am curious mountain goat who has descended into the deserted city Meredith. And I'm mustelid maniac Mike. And we meet here every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for in unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So, saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Here we are again, split between two D stations. (laughs) Yeah, we sure are. I'm out here in the Eastern Outpost, and you're in the OD, as we call it, the original Dalmatian station. Yeah, the ODS, ODS classic. 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 And I heard a little thunder today. That was exciting. Yeah, it's a rainy day. The oven was on for so long last night. My roommate cooked a chicken, and then I (laughs) roasted some vegetables, and I, like, fucked it up because it wasn't on hot enough. So then it had to stay on even longer. Uh So the oven was on for several hours yesterday, and so I threw open all the windows because I get kind of a nice cross breeze in my apartment. Yeah. At, you know, 3 a.m. as I was going to bed. That's early for me to go to bed, too. I've been staying up till 4. The other night I stayed up to like 5.45. The sun started rising and I was just like, time to lie down. It's topsy-turvy month. Um, but I'm glad that I checked last night with the weather because I closed the windows so it didn't rain inside this morning. That's very good. We're going to meet some creatures later that like a nice soggy, humid environment. Yeah, I got your taxonomy cheer, the advanced edition, <laughs> and started listening to it. I got about halfway through and I was like, no, stop. Don't reveal it. Don't give it away. Yeah, don't ruin the surprise. We need that, you know, we need that fresh take. For sure. Need that fresh reaction from you. We sure do. So we were talking about that song, The Tequila Makes Her Clothes Come Off. Yes. (laughs) And we got a text message from Jack, friend of the pod. I was Jack our first guest. I believe Jack was our first guest. Yeah, that with narwhals and marmosets. Right. And that was the day that we recorded the Epis and then we went and watched the movie together with Jack. Jack saw Cats. cats with us. Yes. Yes. And Jack says that that song is on their queer country playlist Mm -hmm. because it's a non-jealous male singer singing a song about a female who gets drunk and strips with her friends. Yeah. And so it's a bit of an inversion. Right. Exactly. Which I I appreciated that insight because I hadn't really thought about the song in that way. Yeah. I've always loved this. And um, there's actually a really great book about it. I don't I'm not going to get this title correct. It's an academic publication, but it's like country queers and rednecks or rednecks country music and queers. I think that's what it is by Dean Hubs. And it's a full like academic exploration of a lot of the queer strains that run through country music. It's not something we think a lot about as being a major trope in country music, but it's there. For sure. And I love that Jack has an ear to that because I really had not (laughs) ever and probably never would have considered tequila makes her clothes come off or fall off in that light. So thank you, Jack. Yeah, you know, I'm definitely all for a queer interpretation of an otherwise 
presented as, I guess, heteronormative song or, or at least perceivably straight song, I guess. Yeah, exactly. There's this album called Lavender Country. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Have you heard that? I might have played it for you before. Maybe. I think another thing to talk about, Meredith, is animals making appearances in video calls. Yes, very cute. I haven't experienced it necessarily myself other than when it was purposeful. Sure. When somebody's like, oh, look at my doggy. I met a dog named Liggity the other day via video chat. Oh. This is my friend Megan's dog. She's like a basset hound mix. She's very cute. I was very excited to meet Liggity. But yeah, other than that, there haven't really been any. We met, we saw Mimi, the fat cat. Yeah, the Jenny and Keith, friends of ours from school, we were Zooming with them and their cat, whose name was Fat Cat, until they took her to the vet. And the vet asked what the name was, and they said, we just call her Fat Cat. Or Fat Kitty or something like that. I don't remember. Yeah. The technician, whoever was checking in the animal, said, there's absolutely no way that I am writing that down as the name of your cat. You need to come up with a better name. And I guess it was Keith dropping off a cat. He's just like, well, I mean, you know, man, like, (laughs) why don't you guys... You know, see if you can come up with a name and, you know, maybe like we'll call her that. And so they called her Mimi after Mimi in the Drew Carey show because she has a quote unquote sassy personality. But I would say that that character is also defined by her size. Yes. She was not a tiny woman. Right. And sometimes I'll have the experience where I'll be like, oh, I feel fat today. Or like, oh, I think I'm getting fat. Like if I'm gaining weight or like, oh, yeah, I'm just like so fat right now. And I'm not saying that I'm ugly. Right. But people interpret it that way. They're like, oh, no, you look great. You're so you're not fat. You're you look great. You're you're pretty. And it's like, oh, I never said I wasn't pretty. I just said I was fat. You know what I mean? So. Right. Right. I think it's another example of, you know, value judgment being placed upon creatures it's like this true deer sort of thing like true fat cat situation right (laughs) also just appearances of dogs colbert's dog's been making appearances oh really yeah i haven't really been consuming any at home media i guess other than just zooming with friends oh sure yeah i mean all the late night hosts are going from home now and a lot of the news anchors too yeah and then I signed up for Curiosity Stream, so I've been watching a lot of documentaries about animals and stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. And then there was um, Amy Sedaris posted on her Instagram, because I don't know if you know this, Mike, that she's a big bunny lover. Like she loves, she's a big bunny advocate. Yeah, I'd heard that. But she posted that advertise i think it's nature on pbs is doing a swamp rabbit special you sent me that (laughs) remarkable rabbits (laughs) i just love that style of video where it's the image and then it tells you what to think at the bottom of the video right it's like look at this driver this driver is being ridiculous or this rabbit runs so impressively fast it's so you can watch the video without sound and still get the content right kind of like tells you what to think of it you know yeah Which I kind of respect because I don't love turning the sound on on my phone a lot. I often watch videos without any sound. Same. I guess that I just feel like the copy in the videos is so leading, you know? Yeah. And it like really tells you what to think. I saw one the other day of this car accident situation. Mm -hmm. It was a truck cam, like the dashboard cam from a semi truck. Yeah. 
And it was saying all this stuff about, look at how this car is driving like a total jerk. He'll get what he deserves. And, you know, four minutes later, when they finally get to the point, the car kind of cuts off the truck and is T-boned by the truck. And it's like, ha, he got what he deserved. I was like, well, that's not the reaction I had to it. It was like, this guy's kind of a jerk driver and he was in an accident. But I don't know why that needed to be posted to the internet quite like that, I guess. Yeah, it's a mess out there. (laughs) This is where my mind is right now. I know, I I know. It's deep into the vagaries of, you know, mindless content posted on various meme sites. Yeah, totally. Well, and I've been doing a pretty good job of keeping myself busy. Like, we're trying to do these dance classes where my friend teaches a class and I accompany it remotely. Mm -hmm. And that's been useful in terms of kind of developing new skills and everything. But it really is hard being somebody that's kind of based their entire existence off of being in the same room as other people right to play music you know yep and all of a sudden we can't gather and we can't make music together and we can't respond in real time it's really jarring absolutely it is very jarring i just want to like hug some people or i don't know clink glasses with people but i can't I want to stand awkwardly in the corner of a bar and not talk to anybody and wish that I was talking to more people. Exactly. Me too. <sighs> oh, well. I guess let's kick it off. It's I go first today, right? Yes, you do. Okay. Well, that's really exciting. So, um, ready? Okay. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Biodiversity rules. Philo. Cordata. Dorsal nerve cords. Class. Mammalia. Furry. Milky. Order. Tubuli dentata. Afrotherian mammals. Family. Orecteropodidae. One extant species. Genus. Orecteropus. Date to the late Miocene. Species. Afer. The aardvark. It loves to eat ants, but it's not the ant eater. An aardvark? Yeah. Oh. So cute. They're pretty cute, Meredith. Oh my goodness. So we're really covering all of these um weird we've done pangolins, we've done anteaters, we've done sloths. We're gonna need to do armadillos one of these days. But now we've got the aardvark in there too. So that we can hit all the mimecophagic animals. Mimecophagia. Okay, so the aardvark is also called the African ant bear. Sometimes it's called the anteater or the cape anteater after the Cape of Good Hope. Okay. Aardvark is an Afrikaans term. It comes from an earlier Afrikaans, which is, you know, the language in South Africa, that heavily Dutch-influenced language. Max of colonialism, doesn't it? It sure does. The early Afrikaans was erdvark, which means... (laughs) Earth pig. Okay, eared. Yeah, that makes sense. And so it lives in sub-Saharan Africa. Pretty much if you look at a map of Africa, Mm -hmm. its range cuts directly across the bottom of the Saharan desert. Yeah. And then south, all the way to the bottom of the continent. Okay, so these guys may, you know, cross paths with lions. They certainly cross paths with lions. They live everywhere where there's suitable food and habitat for them in the sub-Saharan portion of Africa. Okay. Let's just talk real quick about the taxonomy of this. Yeah. So that class is mammalia, mammals. Right. And then the order is tubula dentata. Tubula dentata? T-U-B-U-L-I. 
dentata. Tubula dentata. Okay, that's funny. Mm -hmm. That refers to their totally tubular teeth, which we're going to talk about later. Okay. The family and genus, the Oryctaropus, means burrowing foot. Okay. And then the species Afer refers to Africa. Oh, wow. Okay. So when you said that, or when you said that in the cheer or terapus, I was like thinking we're going to go something aquatic. I don't know. Because puss, I think. What do you think about with puss? Like octopus? Mm. What do you think about when you hear the word puss? Like platypus? Platypus or like puss in boots. I don't know. Octopus. Other things. (laughs) Sure. I think that puss relates to the feet. Okay, okay, interesting. It's like pod. Yeah. Puss pod. It's the only extant member of its order. So that would be like there being only one undulate. Right. Like only one artiodactyla. And so that's why we kind of have this, you know, genus and family is the same. Got it. Oh, that's so interesting. I don't know if we've had one that's been that way, where it's like essentially this a single occupancy taxonomic rank from order on down. Sure. Yeah, I don't know that we have either. It's definitely noteworthy. For sure. It's an ancient species. It's regarded as a sort of living fossil because it's so old. And in prehistory, there were a number of different creatures of the same order but they have since gone extinct. It's also noteworthy that it's not closely related to the South American anteater. The two share some characteristics and a superficial resemblance. And this is because of convergent evolution, where two species arrive at the same solution to a problem separately. And if you think of it, South America and South Africa, they're both in the Southern Hemisphere. They both use the same zodiac. They're relatively similar continent shapes and climates, I guess, kind of, at least in the sub-Saharan region as opposed to Mm -hmm. the actual desert. Their closest living relatives are other Afrotherians, which is a super order. (laughs) The elephant shrew, tenorex, golden moles. I need to do a little bit more understanding of the Afrotherians. I feel like I'm getting to the point now where I can understand better the genetic relationships and like the genetic research, like the words scare me less than they did before. Mm -hmm. But I also just like Afrotherians as the Afrofuturist group made up of elephant shrews, tenorex, golden moles, and aardvarks. (laughs) I was just going to say I would love to hear the amazing jazz fusion album that would be the Afrotherian super order. Yeah, they're offering. And also elephant shrews are hilarious. Have you ever seen the meme of the elephant shrew? And it's just like, it starts, it's clearly take, it's a clip close up on an elephant shrew's face. They've got these wiggly little noses and somebody took it and it cuts off right after this moment when the narrator of this nature video is like, take another look at that snout. And then it busts into the like, the Phantom of the Opera, like, vocalese. Oh, wow. I have to send it to you. It's one of my favorite animal memes of all time. Wow. I say that all the time. Take another look at that snout. That's the elephant shrew. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Afrotherian. Afrotherian super order. The first Afrotherian to play Christine, the elephant shrew. (laughs) (laughs) So cute. So, again, I just think that it's really interesting to go on this taxonomy journey and this history journey and then you encounter really fun sentences yes like the tolem maidens a mysterious clade of mammals with uncertain affinities <laughs> may actually be stem aardvarks either as a sister clade to tubula dentata or as a grade leading to true tubula dentates <laughs> 
So now we've encountered a mysterious clade of mammals with uncertain affinities. <laughs> and then stem aardvarks makes me think that they're like proto aardvarks. Right. Maybe. Right. And then either as a sister clade. So if a clade is a group with common ancestors, maybe like Sheila is the common ancestor for One Direction. And then her sister Stephanie is the breakoff point for the other direction. You know what I mean? So they're like two clades with the same mommy clade, I guess. Yeah, I don't. Actually, no. We're going to get into some of this confusion too with mine. I love it. The Linnaean taxonomy is not foolproof. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that it's really interesting, I guess, the more you learn. There's all, there's that chart of like the time studying the thing versus your belief as to how much of it you know. And the longer you study something, the more you realize that you just could not possibly know everything there is. Yes, exactly. And I'm starting to feel that way. But it's also that, you know, this sort of construct of classification and understanding things is useful, but it is certainly not perfect. And, you know, you get these situations that pop up, I guess. Yeah. I agree with that. So it's vaguely pig-like. It has a stout body, prominently arched back, sparsely covered with coarse hairs. They have limbs that are moderate length, but the hind limbs are longer. They're about like three and a half to four and a quarter feet. Then they have about 28 inches of additional tail. Oh. They weigh about 130 to 180 pounds, and they're 24 inches tall at the shoulder. Okay. That's like a good size creature, you know? Yeah, it is. It's It seems like dog size, but it seems heavier than probably most doggies are. I would say that that's heavier than most dogs. That would be a really big dog. Like a um, Newfoundland or like a bull mastiff. <laughs> Yeah. It's the largest member of the proposed clade, Afroinsectophilia. And that's been proposed based on the result of recent molecular phylogenetic studies. Insectivora is polyphyletic and it's thus obsolete. So like, get with it. (laughs) Yeah. And she's a nocturnal creature, Miss Aardvark. Ms. Aardvark. The front feet have only four toes. They don't have their thumbs. Okay. And their rear feet have all five toes. Oh. And then Each toe has this large nail that's kind of flattened and Mm shovel-like, and it seems to be kind of between a claw and a hoof. A kloof? A kloof. Okay, Meredith, here's a chance for you to demonstrate your terms. It's considered digitigrade, although occasionally it appears plantigrade because it squats onto the soles of its feet. Okay, so meaning it normally is walking on its toes. Would you say similar to the way that the anteater kind of curled its toes under and walked on its fists, essentially? No, it doesn't seem to do that. It okay. seems to actually have its claws out. Claws out, okay. And then walking on its toes until at which point it goes out of releve and onto... Like a parallel second. It goes onto its feet to become plantigrade because the feet are planted on the ground. Exactly. Got it. You know, let's talk about its head a little bit because it has that funny looking snout uh-huh. that looks like a pig. Yes. It's not a pig, but it is a stretched out long nose moment. Mm-hmm. That's actually kind of their skull shape. Oh, interesting. And then their teeth, which we've talked about before, the tubula dentata, they're unique. So the basic tooth structure is that there would be like one pulp cavity. And the pulp is all the like veins and... Nerve endings. Right. So instead of just having one of those per tooth, each tooth is a cluster of thin, hexagonal, upright, parallel tubes of 
vasodentine, which is a modified form of dentine. And each little tube has its own individual pulp canal. Okay. So the largest tooth has 1,500 of these little columns, each with its own individual pulp canal. Huh. And then the teeth have no enamel, and they're worn away and regrow continuously. I mean, that's like the whole point, is that they're smaller teeth that are quicker to regrow. Is it like a whole lot of little crags or is it like a tooth like ours that's got like a honeycomb structure? Do you know what I mean? I don't know. That's a really good question. I didn't really look at any uh, additional information on that. That's a great line of inquiry. (laughs) My thought is that it's sort of like a bunch of little individual spikes sticking up. Okay. And then if like one spike is worn down, the aggregate tooth structure is still such that it can munch on these delicious ants and termites. Right. And then that can regrow, like giving that tooth the opportunity to regrow. So it's kind of one of those, you know, by all these tubes working together, they create sort of like a meta tooth. Got it. Okay. I think I can picture that. It just reminds me the cover of like a Yes album. (laughs) Sure. Or there's just like a really like elaborate mountainscape with lots of like crags and spikies and things. Yeah. It makes me think of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. I could see that too. Otherworldly. They're born with incisors and canines, but those fall out and don't come back. And so adults only have cheek teeth in the back of the jaw. They have 14 upper and 12 lower molars. Cheek teeth. They have a very highly developed sense of smell. They have all these features like nasal conche. They have 10 of them, which is more than any other placental mammal. Wow. Those could improve the sense of smell by just making more area to absorb airborne chemicals. And they can also warm and Mm -hmm. moisten inhaled air. Yeah. They have nine olfactory bulbs, which is more than any other mammal. So they also have a highly developed olfactory lobe. Okay. So part of me thinks that there's so much nasal stuff. That's probably why their nose, like why their head is shaped the way it is, just to fit in all the nose stuff. Yeah. The way creatures evolve around their noses, it's very funny. It was like your star-faced mole or star-nosed mole right? as well. Such interesting nasal evolution. I wish my nasal passages could be so evolved that I wouldn't have so many troubles with sinus infections. Seriously. My sense of smell is terrible. I wish I had more nasal concha. But I do worry more concha may mean more like bacteria breeding in my concha. That's unconscionable. (laughs) They have a small tubular mouth with a long snake-like protruding tongue. That's 12 inches. Also very similar to our anteater friends. Exactly. They have very effective ears, which are long. They're like 8 to 10 inches long. They kind of look disproportionate. Yeah, they do. (laughs) So cute. And then they have very tiny eyes in their head. And they only have rods, which are good for seeing at night, which helps them as nocturnal. Mm -hmm. But don't pick up a lot of color information. Gotcha. I just want to now take the moment to point out that this ear and nose combination makes them very effective at finding ants and termites. And when they hunt, they put their nose to the ground and their ears forward, which leads us to believe that they use both senses in detecting nests of termites and ants. So like our (gasps) anteater friends, Mm -hmm. the aardvark knows what ants smell like. I can't wait to tell Anthony. They have a strongly developed salivary gland. It almost completely rings their neck, and it secretes their secret sauce that keeps their tongue sticky. Is it A1? I hope so. (laughs) 
It doesn't chew, which raises questions about their dentition yeah. and how it's so unique. In its stomach, the pyloric area is muscular and acts like a sort of gizzard to grind up the swallow food. And that's the area between the stomach and the intestines. It's like the end of the stomach is the pyloric area of the stomach. Okay. In there, it grinds up the food. I didn't see anything about it swallowing rocks. Yeah. But it doesn't chew. Interesting. The cecum is also large, which is that area between the small intestines and the large intestines, like where our appendix is. I was just about to ask about cecums. <laughs> yeah, they have a large cecum. I said earlier that the aardvark is a living fossil. Its chromosomes are very conserved, reflecting much of the early eutherian arrangement before the divergence of the major modern taxa, which makes me think like we should probably understand this early evolution thing, this kind of like Pleistocene moment, you know, when things kind of happen. So to that end, I'm trying to watch a lot of documentaries on Curiosity Stream about early evolution and, you know, the great dying and all those kinds of things, just to see if I can wrap my head around what the big moments were in evolutionary history. Sure. Because that's like a totally different direction. Whole other sandbox. Their predators include lions, like we said. Yep. Leopards, cheetahs, African wild dogs, hyenas, pythons, sometimes human. It has the keen sense of hearing Mm -hmm. to know where the predators are. And even when they eat, its ears will be up to listen for predator. Yeah. It will run in a zigzag fashion to elude enemies, but will strike with their claws, tail, or shoulders and can really damage an attacker. And then apparently it can dig really fast because it likes to live in a burrow. Mm -hmm. And so if it encounters a threat, it will run to one of its burrows, but if it can't get there fast enough, it will dig a hole in the ground remarkably quickly, allegedly, (laughs) and then kind of put itself headfirst into the ground until the threat has passed, and then it will back out of its burrow. So like a lion will be walking by and it'll be like, ooh, aardvark, and then he'll get closer and then he'll just see, like, the butt of an aardvark sticking out of the ground and be like, where'd the aardvark go? Yeah. I'm just imagining, like, the aardvark only getting, like, halfway down in his burrow, but at least his head and his ears are hidden. So you just see this animal, like, ass up sticking out of the ground. Yeah, it's totally a I can't see you so you can't see me sort of thing. Very ostrich bury their head in the sand. They will only eat ants and termites, except they will occasionally have a cucumber, which is called the aardvark cucumber. Oh. They'll eat the fruit, then poop near their burrows. Then a new cucumber will grow out of the fertilized and loose soil. They will not eat red ants, and they will not eat the African driver ants because they're so vicious. In a typical night, it will forage 6 to 18 miles for food. Wow. Yeah. They'll zigzag and not repeat a route for 5 to 8 days allowing time for the nest to recover, which is a strategy I suggest for purchasing toilet paper in this harrowing time is to kind of take a zigzag route and don't go to the same store for five to eight days, allowing them to replenish. (laughs) They can occasionally find these insects on the move. And when these insects are going somewhere, these colonies are so vast that they can form a column that's like 30 feet to 130 feet long. So they can just kind of suck them up as they go along. Hoover them up. It eats a lot of insects, and as many as 50,000 in one night has been recorded, which makes me wonder how they recorded that. Wow, yeah. And then uh, their vocal sounds, they will do soft grunting as it forages, (coughs) and loud grunts as it makes for its tunnel entrance, (coughs) 
<laughs> it will bleat if frightened. Okay. Those are our aardvark sounds. They only pair during breeding season, and gestation takes about seven months. A cub is born between May and July, so mommies are pregnant right now. Uh-oh. And then the babies will nurse off each teat in succession. Mom has two <laughs> pairs of teats in the inguinal region, so like down on her torso. Okay. And so it'll suckle on teat one, and then the next time it'll suckle on teat two, and then on teat three, and then on teat four, which is adorable. Well, it seems like it's getting ready for its later eating pattern of zigzagging and not depleting one source. Wow. Great perspective, Meredith. Thank you. It'll be ready to eat termites at nine weeks and then weaned after three to four months. And it will dig its own burrows at six months, but will frequently stay with mom until the next mating season. And then uh, Arthur. And I say, hey, what a beautiful kind of day. Hey, where we can learn to work and play. Yay. And get along with each other. Yeah, that one? Yeah, he's probably the most famous aardvark in the world. He's an eight-year-old brown aardvark. He lives in the fictional town of Elmwood City and is a third-grade student at Lakewood Elementary School. As you were talking about their big ears, I was thinking about Arthur the cartoon, and I was like, he has really little ears. It's very weird that he's an aardvark, I think, because he looks nothing like an aardvark. He sure doesn't. I love Arthur. I thought it was a great show, great series of kids' books, but anatomically i don't get it yeah i mean it sounds like you should write a letter no that author doesn't need me well that's kind of my aardvark knowledge that was a lot i admit i'm very curious about this sort of living fossil aspect of things and these so-called ancient species yeah kind of this early lineage of things i feel like i'm at the point now where i'm encountering these words and i'm not as scared of them Don't be scared of them. So maybe I can understand that better. I think that's one of my journeys that I'm going to write down on a note card and kind of leave around as a sort of good activity for this moment. For yourself to find later and go, ooh. Leave it on my desk with all my other note cards of different things that I want to be doing right now. Your journey deck? My journey deck. Well, that was great. I love learning about aardvarks. We got to get armadillos in here one day, and then I think we'll have all those like strange little ant-loving creatures. Yeah, they love ants and termites. They all do, for sure. Which is like a good food source, you know what I mean? Like it's a, they exist. There's lots of them. Totally, especially in those African grasslands, that sub-Saharan region. Right, the savannas. The savannas. Last week I watched the zoo, the Cincinnati Zoo encounter with the tamanduas, otherwise known as the lesser anteaters. So not the giant ones, but they're the little guys. So they're probably like the size of a cat, maybe like a little bit bigger. Cute. But it was really cute. Isla was the featured creature. And the best part was they gave her this tube of honey, and she just got so messy and sticky with that honey. It was really funny. That sounds great. Yeah. It's on YouTube. I suggest watching it. It's pretty adorable. I appreciate that. Yeah. Maybe I'll check it out. Yeah. Well, I guess it's time for a break. Yes, let's do it. Great work. Thanks. Squawk! Hey, Jerry. Squawk! What's up, Freddy? Just dreading eating this dead cow, Jerry. Eating is such a chore. Well, Freddy, I used to feel ambivalent towards dining myself until I read The Joy of Eating Carrion 
by Marie Condor, the new lifestyle book from Grand Clubby. That sounds lame, Jerry. Well, it's not lame, Freddy. Marie recommends greeting each carcass before you start eating. Greet the carcass? Ow! By crouching low and touching the carcass with your wingtips, then bowing. Oh, wow. That's not lame at all. Marie Condor Squawk explains that by only eating the portions of the carcass that bring you joy, you will better enjoy the process of eating. I really do love entrails. This sounds flappetacular. It's truly life-changing, Freddy. Is it available on an e-reader? Books are such a pain for a bird. Of course it is. Brand Clubby exceeds expectations once again. This poem is titled Social Distance. Columbiforms? More like dumbiforms, but I guess that's why we say bird brained. Pigeons don't watch the news, or if they do, they don't listen. While us humans stay at least six feet apart, groups of pigeons still gather as per usual. And for what? A wedding? A birthday party? To celebrate a graduation? No. They gather to fight over a discarded dollar slice from early March, a relic from a time before the staple food was officially deemed essential. This poem is entitled Ephemera. This is where my story begins and subsequently ends. I am the mayfly. The dance for death is nigh fly. You're gonna die in 24 hours, that's no lie fly. This is my name, at once beautiful and tragic. I am ephemera. The transitory, not kept track of, the forgotten, or as the Greeks say, gone in one day. So gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Or in my case, let's get to boning so I can lay my eggs and get some death over with. Do snakes write sonnets? Quails, quatrains? We hope you found solace in our refrains. Texana you, Texana we, Texana who, Texana me, Kingdom, Animalia, we're not talking about rocks, Phylum, Mollusca, second largest phylum of invertebrates, Class, Gastropoda, they leave a slick, Order, um, there really isn't one, they're just a bunch of clades, Family, Talisi day, they're just typical snails, Genus, Cornu, or is it Helix Aperta, Species, Cornu, Aspersum. They're little land dwellers 
It's the garden snail. Oh my God, Meredith. I'm so excited about mollusks. That's how far I got at the beginning of the episode before I said, wait, stop. Oh man, what a journey this was. Just wait. You're in for quite a treat as we go through some of this stuff. It is bizarre to say the least. Let me get comfortable. Oh yes, by all means. Put those hooves up. Hoofs up. Hoofs up. For some reason, I've been encountering a lot of snail footage on Instagram lately, and I think it's probably the product of a lot of people, you know, really slowing down their lives and spending more time maybe out in their gardens and kind of taking notice of the things that they may otherwise not notice when they're, you know, in their busy daily lives going to and from work. But now people have got time to kind of notice those slower moving things as I am watching my plants like literally grow. I stare at them pretty much every morning and I monitor their progress because it's springtime. So there's a lot of growth happening. It's noticeable, which is really fun for me. Sure. I'm spending way too much time just staring at plants, but I think a lot of people are spending a lot of time staring at snails too. So I thought, why not just dig in to garden snails, see what they're all about. Okay. So we got to get into some tax facts because... There was just a lot here that I was like, I have no idea what to make of this. So first, let's start with the phylum. So all the way up at the phylum, we're in not carnivore or not um, cordata, but mollusca. Right. Yes. So this is the second largest phylum of invertebrates, second to arthropods. Which are insects. Yeah, which are insect friends. So these are mollusca. And so also in this phylum, you've got like octopuses, like squids, cuttlefish, all of those animals that I will probably never do because they creep me out a lot. Nothing against them. You don't like cephalopods? I don't like cephalopods. It's been a thing for me. I don't really like watching videos of them. I don't like thinking about them. They just kind of like yucks me out. I'm not entirely sure why. How do you feel about calamari? Um, I've eaten it. I don't love it. I would never order it for myself, mm. but it just mostly tastes like fried, you know? Yeah, it does mostly taste. And fried. then there was that whole thing about it. They did this research and found out that a lot of it was just like pig sphincters. Anus. I always heard pig anus, but sphincter is probably more accurate. Pork bung, what they called it. Mm. But anyway, there's a lot of very, very varied creatures in the mollusca phylum. So then when we go down to class, that's where we go to slugs and snails. It's easy to kind of think of slugs as like snails missing a house. It is easy to think of snails as slugs that are missing their house. So like slugs are like homeless snails. Mm. How about that? That's great. Yeah. And then there was like another designation called semi-snails or semi-slugs maybe. I think it was semi-slugs, which I would say demi-slugs sounds better. But whatever. We're not talking about them today. And then we get to order, okay? And it just didn't you know how, like, say on Wikipedia, they'll have the whole, like, breakdown? This one, it just said where order usually is between class and family. It just said unranked, and then it just listed a whole bunch of clades. Uh-huh. So, again, we see the Linnaean taxonomy kind of breaking down when there's just so many species and variations and different substrates and different ways to categorize these guys and then we pick back up at the family of Halisi day this is what's called the typical snails so they're not crazy snails they're not weird snails they're just 
typical snails. They're typical. They're typical. Basic snails. They love a pumpkin spice garden patch. Then we move to the genus of Cornu. And this was like another one of these things. The genus used to be called Helix Aperta. But then in this like reclassification of snails, it got reclassified as Cornu. And then we moved to the species Cornu aspersum. As excited as I was for the cat classification task force, I think I'm more excited about the snail classification task force. And there was some wording that kind of made it seem equally high stakes. I forget what it was. It wasn't like a task force, but it was like a, a focus group or something associated with like the reclassification of these guys. So it's kind of a similar thing. So it seems like there's some really great work happening in the classification world out there. Some people really pounding the pavement to yeah. for classification justice. Well, like we just said, you know, it's not a perfect system and it's great that they're finding ways to kind of modify it over time yeah. to make it more accurate. Exactly. I love it. I love that we're kind of witnessing it too and engaging with it in this way. Yeah. So um, let's talk shells. Probably one of the most recognizable parts of the snail is its shell. It's home that it always carries with it. So they're made essentially of calcium carbonate and they're usually made up of about four to five whorls. Not whorls, it's W-H-O-R-L-S. Whorls. 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 Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. And so those are the, the spirals in the shell itself and they'll often be shades of brown with yellow stripes and flecks. And you'll see these guys in any garden. I remember finding, I don't remember finding many like live snails growing up but i would often come across their shells like in the dirt in the backyard former snails their bodies are soft and slimy and can be retracted into the shell so doing a little turtle action and what's interesting is that these guys actually go into periods of hibernation so when conditions aren't conducive to them living a healthy existence which is usually they love like wet humid kinds of conditions wet soil conditions when it's either dry or really cold they actually go into kind of a hibernation state so what they do is they like slurp up into their shells and then they form essentially like a heart a mucus barrier over the opening of the shell it kind of protects them from the elements or protects animals or you know predators or anything getting in and some snails will actually are able to form like a whole like calcified seal over the opening the aperture of their shell which is crazy they just seal themselves off they seal themselves off for the winter wow yeah it's weird and so that seal is called the epiphram and it can be made of mucus or like i said these like calcified this calcification. So you could pick up a shell and it could look like it's closed off, but it actually just contains a sleeping gastropod. It does. It's just a sleepy snail in there. That's cute. Yeah. And this is what blew my mind amongst many other snail facts is that snails can live up to 35 years. What? Right. Isn't that crazy? Because normally I think of insects as kind of short-lived and, you know, their time on their earth is is limited and, you know, they're just here to get it on and go. And then that's not the case here. These Well, but it's a different phylum. It's a different phylum. So they're the, all, all bets are off. Right. It's really interesting. Yeah, that's definitely been our experience with insects is that in their, like, final form, they're really just trying to get it on. Yeah. And then die. Get in, get out, and die. Make more pupa. Pupa. To go back to one of your vocab terms, Mike, the cosmopolitan species. Uh Uh-huh. So I think 
these guys are native to kind of the Mediterranean region of the world, but, you know, through over the centuries, they've been essentially distributed, whether purposefully or not, around the world. So they're pretty much found all over the place, except Antarctica, Sure, obviously. They're herbivores, so they feed a lot on decaying leaves and things, but occasionally they'll also eat some, like, decaying worms, so just, like, detritus in the soil. And obviously, they're probably fed on by a lot of small mammals, birds, lizards. Glowworms really like snails. Cute little baby fireflies yeah so they actually like well poison them they just poison the snails and then eat them crazy yeah and then locomotion occurs via rhythmic waves of contraction so essentially they move their foot that thing on the bottom right beneath the shell they move their foot in a contraction that goes from back to front this contraction also causes a liquefaction of the mucus in their tail, which allows the tail to slide. So you can literally see pictures online of a snail who has left a trail, a mucus trail. Cute. It is cute. Now we're going to get into the crazy world of snail mating. Please. This is where I was reading this last night and I thought I was being punked. Like it was so bizarre. And I'm like, this is, this would have to be a really long, very detailed, well-executed con that stretches all across Wikipedia. So I think it's true, but this is insanity. Okay. So I'm going to take you through some steps here about snail mating. Jeez. All right. I'm buckling up. Yeah. Snail snogging. So snails are hermaphroditic. So this means that they contain both sperm and eggs. So both sets of gametes, as they say. So one, the first step is courtship. And this can go from like two to 12 hours. So in the courtship phase, this is where the snails will kind of come face to face and they'll like touch tentacles. So the tentacles are, if you think about a snail, you know, they've got the two, there's two sets of tentacles that come off. So there's two on the top and can you see my... You're kind of like sticking out your tentacles between your eyes. Yeah. Like you're putting the back of your hand between your eyes and sticking your middle and pointer finger out. Yeah, exactly. So that would be the top set of tentacles. And those were where there's like eye-like structures, but they're not particularly well-visioned. They don't have great eyesight. Sure. And then there's a lower set of tentacles that are more for like feelers and kind of sensing the environment around them. So the snails kind of get together and they touch tentacles and then they bite lips. They bite their lips and they bite at the genital pores. So the genital pores are actually on the front. They're like actually pretty close to what I guess we would consider the face or like, you know, so it's up there at the tip top. It's handy. It sure is. They will bite lips and, you know, bite the genital pores, which triggers quote unquote, the eversion, not the inversion, but the eversion of the penis. So the penis starts to come out of its hidey hole. Is that one of the genital pores? I think it's part of the genital pore. It's like in that region. Okay. I know. This is all very... And so as this is happening, pressure builds up. Okay. Pressure is building, building, building. At which point we have the firing of the love dart. fire away step two is the love dart or love darts are fired whoa so both snails remember they're hermaphroditic so they're both firing love darts Uh uh-huh so the love dart is a sharp dart it's like another calcified thing it's a sharp hard piece of material it's held in the dart sack obviously of sexually mature snails 
And so it's actually triggered to be fired off through this accumulation of pressure. So when it's built up enough and one snail touches the genital pore of another snail, the dart will fire. (laughs) It's like a teenage boy. But what's different than that, though, is that the darts, which can like shoot into the other snail, and some snails you can even see them after a love dart has been fired and the dart like literally goes like in one side of their head and out the other. But it's not a means of sperm transfer. It's just a dart. Sperm transfer happens after this. Okay. Wait, so the love dart like shoots out and goes through the other, like penetrates. It can. It can either just stab at them or it can actually like penetrate. Wow. But what's going on here with the love dart, it's thought that essentially the snail on the receiving end of the love dart, so say it's a successful hit of the love dart, the dart itself is coated in a kind of mucus that essentially triggers the closure of the sperm digestion organ and opens the sperm storage area. (laughs) Is that like a division of Manhattan mini storage? Most popular locations in Hell's Kitchen. In the West Village. In the West Village. Well, the East Village, too. Let's be real. Yeah, so there's like a certain substance on this. I don't know if it's like a hormone. I think it's something different. Long story short, it makes the receiving snail more, um, I guess, primed for the sperm to then fertilize the egg. It just puts them in a better position to have successful egg fertilization. So whoever is struck by the love dart will then be more in the position of what we would understand to be like female. Yeah. But being the egg provider. Right. And the firer of the successful love dart would be the sperm provider. Exactly. But I guess technically this could be happening in tandem. So if you get a good love dart shot on each end, then it makes both snails more, I guess, optimized for sperm egg fertilization as opposed to merely sperm digestion. (laughs) I know. It's a lot. So could then two snails who are, I guess, sharpshooters with their love darts and they both hit each other, could then they fertilize one another as eggs? Yeah. Remember, so because they're hermaphrodites, they both have eggs and they both have sperm. So if there's a successful transfer made all the more successful or optimized by a successful love dart hit, then both snails could ostensibly have a better chance of fertilized eggs. Okay. Cool. But also it could happen just on one side. So say it's a successful love dart hit. The snail that was struck by Cupid's arrow is going to be the one that will be more primed essentially for a successful egg fertilization. As opposed to just being ready to digest some sperm. Yes. Thirsty, as it were. Cool. So sperm is exchanged between the two snails and then the eggs are fertilized internally. I mean, there's more that can be read about that. You know, I had to kind of put a lid on it at some point. That's how I felt about my, you know, early evolution thing. I had three pages of aardvark notes. Yeah, exactly. I have to put an epiphram on this. Oh, nice. On this exploration. I was laughing like so hard. I was like, what is this? They harpoon each other just to make the other more primed for the baby making, I guess. It's crazy. It's all just crazy. I have to say that it adds a new dimension to the concept of a gastropod dream, which is something that we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. And then it's also a sort of answer to shark farts. How? If a situation is shark farts, then you have to find a way to turn it into a love darts scenario. (laughs) 
not shark farts, love darts. Make love darts, not shark farts. Exactly. To wrap things up, to add in some other funny snail information. So actually, I first heard about this through my interest in Korean skincare. What's called snail mucin is a very popular thing to put on your face. It's very good with like acne scars and redness and just overall moisturization. I love it. I think it's great. And snails aren't killed for it. It's just that their slick is collected and put into skincare products. That's nice. Yeah, it's very, very common. Actually, you start to see it more and more. So I was reading that snails, their spirals always go to the right, except for, and then it had this link on Wikipedia. It said, except for, see, Jeremy, parentheses, snail. And then I clicked on it. And it was like, Jeremy is the snail with a left swirling shell. Wait a minute. Who's Jeremy? <laughs> Jeremy was a snail. I think he died in 2017, but he had a left spinning shell which is not normal he was just like fuck you guys i'll do what i want yeah i guess or i don't know if he was like genetically modified or something but i love that his name is jeremy and he's got his own (laughs) it's literally all snails ever have swirled to the right except jeremy you go jeremy you chart your own course that's very funny yeah that is snails in a snail shell meredith that was very informative do you know anything about other mollusks and gender sex reproduction habits i guess you wouldn't if you're adverse to the cephalopods i'm wondering if this hermaphroditic thing is a sort of like phylum based circumstance that i didn't get into i pretty much when i was looking at mating i just i looked at mating of gastropods Mm. as opposed to mating of mollusks because i think even within gastropods it's so varied um so i can only imagine how much more varied it would be when you get into the huge phylum that is mollusca sure so i'm not sure but aren't seahorses hermaphroditic as well or is it just that the dads bear children i think it's after the eggs have been fertilized the dads will take the eggs and hold them inside of themselves okay and then when the eggs are hatched and born they come out of the father's egg storage facility right (laughs) yes but i'm not certain i'm not i don't even know if seahorse are i'm not sure where they fall in all of this actually yeah me neither line of inquiry opened yeah So, yeah, unfortunately, I don't know a lot or I can't really speak to other mollusk mating. I mean, by all means, you should do an octopus one of these days and find out. Yeah, I'm curious. I kind of like cephalopods. Yeah, go for it. I might squirt them a lot while you're presenting, but that's okay. By all means. Yeah, that's fine. Squirming's allowed. Yeah, we're all creatures after all. Should we take a little break? Let's do that. (laughs) Love dart. With the foot of the gastropods slide away from here to that safe garden patch and the tiny forks that you fear. Hi, I'm Sarah Mollusklin. Every year, thousands of snails meet an unfortunate end in savory sauces from France to Spain to Crete and Morocco. Whether they are simmered in a white wine sauce or drenched in garlic butter or coated with flour and fried with rosemary and vinegar, these snails need your help. Will you join us in ending the barbaric practice of snail consumption? Say, Escar, no, 
to escargot. different today. Is that like barley? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not really smelling oats. I'm definitely smelling a lot of barley though, but I still think we're in the feedback. Yeah, it yeah. At least we still have our sense of smell. That's a good sign. Well, uh Sarah with an H from Houston asks, "Do gastropods like gastropubs?" Oh. Well, actually, you know, I think I have a little bit of an answer to this because I was reading, believe it or not, about how a gardener can control snail pests. And one of the options was essentially putting a plastic bottle, like burying it into the soil at soil level. So the top comes right at soil level and then filling that bottle with beer because snails like beer. They like the carbohydrates in the beer, but essentially they drown in the beer and that's why it's a trap for snails. So I would argue that they like the gastropub, but I would be worried about what happens to them once they enter the gastropub. I feel like gastropods are kind of heavy salt, malt vinegar experiences generally. You know, it's like a lot of french fries, a lot of like scotch eggs, like those yes. sorts of things and they're very salt heavy dishes. Yes. And I don't know that that is is right for a gastropod. Because we've all heard about you put snail, you put salt on a snail and it just desiccates them, dries them out. We don't want that. No, we definitely don't want a desiccation situation. I guess the fish position could be that like while a snail is attracted to all the carbohydrates offered at the gastropub, it should probably stay away for its own good. Well, yeah, but that doesn't really answer the question of do they like gastropods? pubs. That's true. I don't think that they can, though. I think that the moment that one enters a gastro pub, it's done. Yeah. So I think I think the answer is no. And then comma, because a, ga- a gastropod is not likely to survive a gastro pub experience. Exactly. Yeah. We got to qualify that a fish position. But ding, 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 ding. All right. Jonathan from Montpelier asks, what's the last animal you had the privilege of petting? You know, it just feels like so long ago. I I don't know that I know the answer to that question. I really had to think about it, but I think the last one, I was at a birthday party. I think the last gathering I attended, there was a newly adopted dog in attendance whose name was Mac. He looked like some sort of like Jack Russell Terrier mutt mix. But he was very sweet. He was a little bit uneasy, I think, being in new environs. But that was the last doggy I pet. Um, I, I honestly don't have an answer for this. That's okay. We're in tough times. It's a. It might be. It might be Benji, Jesse's dog. But that was like months ago. I feel like I've petted a dog since then. Who's to say? We don't have dogs. We've been very dog-deprived. True. And a lot of my friends that I see on a regular basis don't have creatures living in their home. That's okay. Maybe the fish position is... We would love to pet them, but it's just been so long. Yeah, I wish that I had a right answer for this, and I just feel like I don't. I'm embarrassed. There's no right answer. It's a tough question, given our circumstances right now. I wish... I, my fish position is... I don't know. Yeah. And then mine was, I guess, a month ago, pretty much exactly. I petted a little scared dog named Mac. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. All right. Well, Meredith, we got one of our favorites. Diana from Wales has sent in a mate pair feet upon. 
We have the elephant seal. Okay. The trichinalia spiralis. Ooh, okay. Which is the nematode that causes trichinosis. Yes. And then the glowworm. Oh, a glowworm. Second appearance on the pod today. Yeah, popular creatures. Okay. I think that we can just say outright that we do not want to feed upon the trichinalia spiralis because that'll give us trichinosis. Yeah. And I also don't think I want to mate with a fucking nematode. Right. So we have to pair with it? Ooh, what do you well, talk about? No, I mean, I don't want to do anything with this nematode. I don't want to pair with it either. But I think maybe, like, I would do a hit it and quit it and, like, figure out how nematodes work, I guess. Yeah, I think. And then move on. I feel... Can you get trichinosis from mating with a nematode? Questions for angels. I don't know. So I guess that leaves us with pair and feed upon. Okay, so... Would you rather pair with the elephant seal or the glowworm? Or feed upon the elephant seal or the glowworm? Well, I can't imagine the glowworm would have much nutritional value or level of satisfaction. Satisfaction? Yeah, I guess I'm going to be eating that elephant seal because there's a lot of good meat there. Don't you think an elephant seal would make a good partner, though? They seem aggressive from what I remember about elephant seals. Oh, that's a good point. You know, I I kind of like the lifestyle of the glowworm in that it's more like a polygynandrous situation later in life. Sure. kind of like that freedom in a partnership. Yeah. Well, it is like you'd spend your life together and then you'd just die after a month of Bacchanalian Dionysian pleasure, I guess. I'm kind of into that. Yeah. I can see that being a fun journey. Yeah. So I think that's my fish position. I'm going to eat the elephant seal. I'm going to get in, get, get out real quick with the trichinosis. Well, the trichinalia spiralis. The trichinalia spiralis, excuse me. And then pair with the glowworm. I am in agreement. Although sometimes I wonder if maybe pairing with the elephant seal and feeding upon the glowworm is more right for me, but you've convinced me that I should mate with the trichinalia spiralis, pair with the glowworm, and feed upon the elephant seal, because I bet that elephant seal is tasty. Yeah, there's just a lot of meat there. There's just no question. All right, a fish position. Yeah. Um, ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Uh, keep the questions coming, animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We really love to hear from you. <laughs> we love it so much. And, uh, you know, stay safe out there, everybody, I guess. Yeah. Stay safe and stay curious about animals. Yeah, spend your time researching animals. That's what we do. That's totally what we do. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.